was um, just a couple of weeks ago in our study um, through Mark, we came across the story of the blind beggar, Bartimaeus, and uh, how he was on the margins of society, cast aside, not on the road with the rest of the crowd, but on the side of the road. So just may the Lord always just uh, impress upon our hearts, and give us eyes to see and ears to hear for those that are in need, that, uh, that society and even us have sort of cast aside. Thank you so much for, for sharing. I appreciate that. Um, we're going to move into our, our study, uh, our continued study of Mark, and want to highlight something. We're going to take a, a break from this study. So this morning we're in Mark 11, starting in verse 27. We're going to go through the first 12 verses of chapter 12, right? So starting at the end of Mark 11, uh, around verse 27, then we're going to head into the parable of the tenants, which is Mark 12, verses 1 to 12. That's our context, our text for today. But um, starting next week, we're going to just kind of push pause on our study of the Gospel of Mark on the way of Jesus. And we're going to spend five short weeks uh, in a series on worship. Now, worship is a big word, and it's a word that perhaps doesn't get enough attention in the church, in the life of the believer, and so that's exactly the reason that uh, myself and the leadership decided this would be a good opportunity for us to kind of uh, pause and um, kind of hold off on Mark and take a look at, uh, through a series of sermons and messages, uh, the idea of worship, the nature of worship, the purpose of worship from God's perspective and our perspective because it's a word that perhaps we use a lot, but we don't even know what it means. And um, I think all of us can spend more time just plumbing the depths of worship in the life of a believer. And what does that even look like? And one of the reasons is, is that we often, which is understandable, but we often in Christian circles in our society, we equate worship with music. So when we say we're going to worship, we think we're going to sing some songs. And that is good, and that is probably the most popular way that believers um, let God know how much we love them. It's through song. And we all connect different ways through music. But we're going to kind of just pause on this bigger idea of worship and see what it truly means for us. We're going to look at the theology of worship, practical applications of worship, how we can think more biblically about Worship. I think it's going to be um, a pivotal five weeks in the life of Trinity. Because also, we have planned it so that the sixth week, the week that we come out of this study, will be Palm Sunday. And we will be all about the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem as King, and then we will look at um, what it means to worship Him. And so, Palm Sunday, and then the week after that, Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, is really so much about worship, isn't it? Welcoming the King. And so what a wonderful way to talk about worship for a few weeks and then come right into Palm Sunday, Passion Week, and then, of course, Easter Sunday. So that's our plan for the next couple of months. Um, You know, Easter is approaching quickly, and so we wanted to take this opportunity to bring our focus and attention as a church to the nature and purpose of worship for us personally, but also corporately. Uh, as Trinity, all right? But this morning, we will be in Mark.
And then, of course, after our series and after Easter, we'll pick back up in, in Mark, which will be appropriate because we are coming to the conclusion of Mark. But you'll notice everything is starting to slow down. Now that we've actually gotten in our story to Jerusalem, and we are in probably Tuesday or Wednesday of the Passion Week here in our story today, that we are right in the midst of it. But Mark, as I've been mentioning all along, kind of puts the brakes on things and slows down. And the rest of his letter, the rest of his story, is all focused on the last few days of our Lord Jesus' life. And so it will be appropriate for us to pick back up after Easter. But this morning... We're going to look at authority. What does it mean to have an authority figure in our life? What does it mean that Jesus calls himself the authority? And what does uh, that mean to us specifically as believers that we have someone that we um, are to give authority to in our life? Somebody that is over us. You know, we, I think we all know what that looks like in our daily lives. Because we have spouses. That's a joke right there. That's when you put the little you know, laugh sign up, right? And we have bosses and we have people, supervisors, people that we, re, you know, that we uh, report to and that are, sort of have authority um, over us. But you know, in this passage today, Jesus interacts with the leaders, the authorities of that day uh, uh, among the people of Israel. And in order to prove his point, because they kind of try to question him as they've been doing all along to trip him up, he shares a parable with them. It's the parable of the tenants. Some call it the wicked tenants or the parable of the vineyard. And that's our focus for this morning, but it really all is about authority. Because Jesus uses this again as another teachable moment to teach them about his authority and the Father's authority because the leaders of the Jewish people thought they had all the authority and they were questioning Jesus' authority. Who are you bringing all these things from, Jesus? And how are you performing these miracles? And why are you saying these things? Under whose authority are you doing these? And so Jesus then, of course, confronts them and he shares uh, this story and it's a parable and that's what we're going to look at this morning. But, you know, authority is something that perhaps we often shy away from because in its essence, right, our pride is our downfall. Our pride is sort of the basest sin. And so it goes all the way back to the garden because we didn't want to give up control. Because when you have somebody in authority over you, that means that you're not in control. I'm reminded of this story, and I shared it once a long time ago. It's one of my favorite uh, stories that gives a good illustration of authority. But, you know, there was this governor, and uh, he was going around trying to um, drum up votes, you know, in support. And, uh, and so he had a long day of sort of going around and shaking hands and kissing babies and all those things, right? And he was ending his day at a church barbecue. And so he comes to the barbecue, and he gets in line for food, and he was famished. He had spent his whole day, even forgot to eat, and he was trying to drum up support and votes, and... And, you know, by all accounts, he was a very humble man, but yet he was the governor of the state. And so he gets in line for the church barbecue, kind of like what we're going to do later. And um, he gets in line and he comes up to where they're serving. And uh, the lady just puts a piece of chicken on his plate. And the man was really famished. And, you know, he's trying to be humble, but he says, ma'am, if you don't mind, may I have another piece of chicken? And she said, well, I'm sorry, 
sir, but I'm only allowed to give one piece. And he said to himself, well, you know, I know I'm really hungry. I don't want to pull sort of the governor card. But he says, are you sure? Because I'd really like to have a second piece. He said, I'm sorry, I can only give one. He says, you know, you know who I am, right? I am the governor of this state. And she says, well, you know who I am. I'm the one giving out the chicken. And so you need to move along, sir. And so it's this idea that we might think that we are in the position of power and authority, but it seems like there's always somebody that is in authority over us. And of course, we know as followers of Christ that it is to be the Lord Jesus. And so here is Jesus teaching not only the disciples, but trying to teach the leaders of Israel. Today, we're lo- it's the Sanhedrin. We often talk about the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, but the Sanhedrin was that group that was kind of like the lawgivers. They were, in essence, the politicians of the day. They were the ones who were in charge of the law, and because of it, they felt pretty proud. Like they were the ones who were in authority, right? And people had given them that authority. But we also recognize, as we um, read through this in a moment, where is this taking place? This whole scene that I'm about to read from Mark is taking place in the temple. Was not the temple the place of authority in the lives of the people of Israel? And so Jesus is in the temple, the place of authority, talking to the Sanhedrin, the people who are in authority, and he is teaching them that he is the one with all power and authority. And so he uses then this parable to make the point. So I'm going to read it. And then we're going to talk about it. Specifically, we'll first we'll start with his interaction with the leaders. And then we will look at some, uh, some important things to glean from this, uh, this very unique but vital parable in the teachings of Jesus. So it says in Mark 11, starting in verse 27. It says, And they came again to Jerusalem. That's Jesus and his disciples. And as he was walking in the temple... The chief priests and the scribes and the elders, that's the Sanhedrin put together, they came to him and they said, Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do them? And so Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Don't you love that? He always does it. Answer a question with a question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. And here's the question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it. They kind of got together and huddled up. They're saying to each other, hmm, well, if we say from heaven, then Jesus is going to say, why didn't you believe him? But then if we say it was from man, then, you know, they were afraid the people were going to kind of rise up against them for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they were kind of in a pickle, as it were. So here's how they answered Jesus. We don't know. And Jesus said to them, Then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. More on that in a moment. So then he began to speak to them in parables. And here's the parable. A man planted a vineyard. And he put a fence around it. And he dug a pit for a wine press and built a tower. And then he leased it to some tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. 
And again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others. Some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, Surely they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. Then the inheritance will be ours. So they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the Scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous. It is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Isn't it interesting? Jesus had spoken in many parables, but most often it was to keep the truth away from those who had already rejected him. But that those who wanted to hear, he always said, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. But here is different. Here is a parable of judgment, but it's a parable that they can all understand. And at the end, Mark even makes it a point to say they knew that it was about them. So let's sort of unpack this scenario, this scene, and then specifically the parable and see what it is that we need to learn from this this morning. So first we see in verses 27 to the end of chapter 11, excuse me, Jesus' interaction with the Sanhedrin. Again, he's in the temple talking to the leadership of the people of Israel. And once again, they're trying to trap him. And once again, he addresses their question with a question. And so they simply say, under whose authority are you doing these things? Now, first off, let me tell you, this wasn't even a sincere question. Because if you remember, they had already designated and decided that his authority was from Satan. Do you remember that? That was the turning point when Jesus knew that they and the nation, because of them, would reject him. So they weren't even sincere in trying to figure out the truth. They were just simply trying to trap him so that they could kill him. And so they say, under whose authority? And then, of course, Jesus says, all right, I'll answer your question, but you answer me this question. And then he goes back to John the Baptist. And he says, so, here's my question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they were put in a spot. Jesus put them in the corner. Because they knew, the Sanhedrin did, that if they recognized, well, his authority was from heaven, then people are going to say, or Jesus would say, why didn't you believe him? Because he was talking all about me. But if then they did the opposite, and they said, well, it was from man, then the people would be upset because they really liked John the Baptist, and he had a lot of followers who are now following Jesus, see? Because they recognized him as a prophet. So they were backed up into a corner. And what do we do when we don't know the answer? No. And so that's what they did. And so they, they basically just kind of, it was a cop out. And they just said, we don't know the answer. But yet they still wanted him to answer. And Jesus said, you're not going to answer me. You don't get an answer from me. I like that. Right? I'm not going to go as far as to say it shows some attitude from Jesus. But I like the way he did that. And he wasn't being coy with them. And he wasn't, you know, playing games with them, of course. But I think he was just calling out their hypocrisy. As if to say, you're not even looking for the truth. You've already declared and determined that my authority is coming from the enemy, the evil one. 
and not from God the Father. And so therefore, you're not even asking a true question, and you couldn't even answer this, so I'm not even going to bother. Sometimes, when we have conversations with others, and they continue to push and push and push, sometimes it's okay and it's godly to move on and to let that go. And we need to recognize that in our own lives too, because there are people that do that. They push and they push. And that takes discernment, because we certainly don't want to be unloving or uncaring or uncompassionate. But that's what Jesus did. But then here's what happens. He doesn't just leave it there. Because remember, um, this is one of the last few days of Jesus' life and his ministry with the disciples. And so he's got very few teachable moments left. Now, of course, he knows in a few short days when he goes to the cross... That's the ultimate teachable moment. But here he takes this opportunity and he tells a parable. But it's very clearly stated. And all of the symbolism would be really simple and easy for everybody to understand. Even us here in church. It's good. And so he tells this parable about a vineyard. It's a vineyard that was planted. And if you notice, I'm going to read through it again. Each of the characters in this story are representative of people that are right involved with Jesus and who he's talking to. Okay, But something to note, which is interesting, Jesus, as he often did, is really referencing and referring back to an Old Testament passage, Isaiah chapter 5. So the parable of the vineyard, or the tenants, the wicked tenants, is really a reference back to Isaiah 5. So let's read that before we kind of look at the characters in Jesus' parable. Isaiah 5, 1 to 7 says this, see if it sounds familiar. Let me, and this of course is God speaking, you'll get the references. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. This is what God has done. And he hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard? Let me read that part again. What more was there to do for my vineyard? That I have not done it. When I looked to it to yield grapes... Why did it yield wild grapes? And now will I, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. Its briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, there was bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. See, Jesus obviously was thinking of this passage as he tells this parable. And his listeners, and this is key when we keep it in context, his listeners would have known the reference. It would have been very familiar to them. Because in the Old Testament especially, a vineyard was uh, often given as a symbol or a picture of the people of Israel. 
So we have Jesus telling this parable, and it's very similar to what we just read, that there's a man who planted a vineyard, and he did all those things that it said in Isaiah, put a fence around it. He dug a pit for a wine press and a tower. All of those things, why? Why would you plant a vineyard and then go out of your way to put a fence around it, to dig a pit for a wine press, to build a tower? What does that mean? It means that you really are putting care and attention into it. That you really love your vineyard and the fruit that it's supposed to produce. So therefore, he's going to do everything he can to make it the choicest vineyard, the best vineyard. And Jesus is saying this to the people of Israel. Saying, look, Sanhedrin leaders, the people are the vineyard. God is the owner. He's the one who was planted. But yet, as we'll see, all he wanted to do was see fruit. And he came collecting for that fruit, the blessings, the fruit and blessings you're supposed to be to the other nations. And all he finds are wild grapes. And so he goes on. It says, when the season came, this is the parable. And again, we keep Isaiah 5 as the point of reference. When the season came, the owner sent a servant to the tenants to get some of that fruit from the vineyard. But what did the tenants do? They took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. So if we look at our, our parable today, we have God is the planter, the owner of the vineyard. The people of Israel are the vineyard, right? So who would be these tenant farmers? They would be the Sanhedrin. They would be the Pharisees, the religious leaders who were given authority by God at that time to do what? To take care of the vineyard, to take care of the people of Israel. But then, of course, we have the owner sending agents to go and collect, to check up on the vineyard, to collect from the tenant farmers some fruit. Now, this was something that happened in that day. There were big landowners who leased out their farms, and every year they would send an agent back, they would send a representative back to get some of the fruit. And legally and contractually, that meant that they still had ownership. It was a way to kind of check in. So once a year, the landowner sent somebody, a representative, and they went to the tenant farmers and said, uh, the owner, my Lord, has asked me for some of the, the fruits. And that then um, shows that the owner still has ownership of the vineyard. And so in the parable, the owner sends, sends some agents. So who would these agents be in the picture of Israel? It would be the prophets, you see? And so, and of course, everybody listening would know this. So in the parable, it says the owner sends these people, and one after another, the tenant farmers, they didn't even own the land. They were just supposed to take care of the land and be in charge of it. What did they do to the owner's agents? One after the other. They either mocked them, beat them, or even killed them and sent them away. Did not the nation of Israel, God's beloved chosen people, do that to each of His prophets that he sent to them. Why did he send his prophets? As we look at the Old Testament history, he sent them ultimately because he loved his people. And he said, you're off the track. You need to come back and repent and be obedient because you are supposed to produce fruit, Israel. Fruit for me and fruit as a blessing to the people around you and you're doing neither. So one after the other, God had sent his representatives, the prophets, and the leaders of Israel and the people as a whole rejected them. And they would know 
Mark even says it, that Jesus is getting to a point and he is condemning them for their disobedience and not recognizing his authority or the authority of the prophets. And so finally, if they didn't understand it yet, they would hear. It says in verse 6 of, of chapter 12, but yet the owner had one more option. He still had one more servant or agent to send. It was his beloved and only son. And of course we know that is the Lord Jesus. That after all the prophets, even after John the Baptist, the final prophet, remember we looked at Malachi, we see that John the Baptist, the one that was prophesied and predicted, and he comes and what happens? Yes, there were many that accepted him, but ultimately, what did the leadership of Israel do to John the Baptist? Killed him. And so in the parable, Jesus said, finally, the owner sends his only son. And why? Man, this is beautiful. Let's not miss this. It shows a glimpse into the heart of God. And you can see Jesus probably even weeping inside. It says in verse 6, So he had one other, a beloved son. Finally, the owner sent him to them, saying to himself, this is the owner who would be God, right, in the parable representative, that the owner saying, surely they will respect my son. God sends Jesus. They're not, they're not going to reject him. They're not going to turn him away. They're not going to abuse and torture him. They're not going to sacrifice him. But those tenants, those wicked tenants, they said to one another, hey, this is the heir. If we get rid of him, then the inheritance is ours. You know why they said that? Because actually, again, that's what would happen. That's why the owner once a year at least would send a representative to get some fruits. Because if he didn't, or if he sent his son then the tenant owners would think, perhaps the owner is dead and not coming back. So, this is the last line of defense. If we get rid of the heir, then by default, kind of like squatter's rights, then this land is ours. And so in the parable it says, that's exactly what they did. And so, uh, they took him, they killed the son. Not only did they kill him, they threw him out of the vineyard. What a sobering picture and visual of the rejection of Jesus by the people of Israel. That they killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. But then in verse 9, it really Jesus brings it home. What will the owner of the vineyard do? See, the story's not over. Because the tenants don't just claim victory and get ownership because they killed the son. No. It says, what will the owner do? We know that represents God. He's going to come and destroy the tenants. He's going to allow their destruction... And give the vineyard to others. Not curious. Jesus is saying, here's what the father, the owner of the vineyard, is going to do. He's going to come himself, and he will destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And then he quotes from the psalm. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in his eyes. And it wraps up and says, Then they feared because they knew that it was against them. And then they left him and they went away. So Jesus brings it on home. And he says, The story doesn't end there because God will come back and judge the wicked tenants. He will judge those for their disobedience. See, remember, Jesus was in the process of judging the people of Israel for what they were about to do to him. He did it with. The parable of the fig tree, right? With the withered fig tree. We saw that represented Israel. 
Now, withered from the roots up, and Jesus then taught his disciples, like, look, you've got to be ready, because judgment is coming. And you know what's interesting? That perhaps he didn't realize this, but in 70 AD, not even a generation later, it's exactly what happened. That Jerusalem was sacked and the temple was destroyed, and so what God said would happen would come true. His will would be done, because that was God getting rid of those wicked tenant farmers. And then Jesus says, the son that he sent, he doesn't stay dead. Because he is the cornerstone. The one that the people rejected will actually be the chief authority. See that? That means God always wins. Right? It's under his authority. So the whole thing, Jesus is teaching about authority. And he's telling them, look, we're in the temple. Yes, you are the Sanhedrin. You are the leaders. But here, you recognize that I am the authority. So when they asked him, under whose authority do you come and do these things? And they didn't even answer his question. Jesus teaches in the parable as if to say, the Father's authority. The one in heaven. And I and the Father are one. See? And so Jesus is proclaiming his authority Finally, as king and ruler, but the one that they're going to reject. The stone that the builders reject becomes the chief cornerstone. And that's the beauty of Good Friday to Resurrection Sunday. It's about his authority over death. And so a final few things to wrap it up. We, um, we see that when Jesus kind of brings it to conclusion... He, in essence, is saying, I have all the authority, but I had given you the authority. Now watch this. He is saying, you had the authority and you blew it. Sanhedrin, you were the ones in charge. And God loves you and your people, and you're supposed to be doing the right thing by Him, being obedient children. And then you're going to be a blessing and a light to all the other pagan nations, and you have not done any of that. So therefore, judgment is coming upon you. But it's also a beautiful picture of Jesus ushering in the age of grace. Saying it's no longer by the law and by your laws and your wicked disobedience that people can come to God. It's only going to be through what I am then forced to do. But He does it voluntarily going to the cross that we then transition from the law to grace. That it's all because of what Christ does. And that's why in a few moments we're going to remember what He did on the cross through the communion table, the bread and the cup. Just another day and a half later when Jesus is in the upper room in the Last Supper. That's what we're approaching. See, that's what we're remembering this morning. Because Jesus is establishing and proclaiming His authority, but even saying, you think that you're going to reject this stone? Yes, all the stones will be, the stones of the temple that you see will be destroyed, and that did happen. But he said, that stone will become the chief cornerstone. You think that stone in front of the grave is going to keep me away? Because that stone is going to be rolled away, and that grave is going to be empty. And I and my authority from the Father are going to defeat death. You remember Jesus said to the disciples, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. He says, then go and make disciples of all the nations. Right? Because he said, all that authority was him. So there is, there is so much significance in here, more than we can even cover this morning. 
But he's telling them, calling them out for their disobedience and saying, you had your chance, but now, even I would believe not uh, eternally, but temporarily, there's going to be somebody new coming in to take over care of the vineyard. That's the church. Because does he not say, he says that what will the father do? What will the owner do? He will come and proclaim judgment and he will give it over to other tenants. See, that's the church. Until that day, I believe in the future, when Christ returns after the rapture, we've got into all of that, when he returns to set up his kingdom and it says all Israel will be saved, Paul says in Romans, at that moment, then all of the blessings of the kingdom restored. But until then, the age of grace and the church God's representatives on earth. See, we are to be what Israel did not. We are to do what they did not do. That we are to be representatives of the Most High God, the owner, the planter of the vineyard to the world around us. So we now represent Christ to the world. Because that's what God wanted for His people of Israel. But because of their disobedience, He has set them aside and said, you had your chance. Jesus tells them the parable. There's going to become judgment. He's going to kick out those owners. And he's going to put in place, until Christ's return, until the Savior's return, he will have his church. Jesus says, I will build my church. But isn't that wonderful for us that we know now that it's no longer the law, but it's by grace. It's because of what Jesus has done. But it's all, see, his authority. And so, what are the applications for us this morning? Well, I think in two ways we see it this way. If you are here this morning and you have not yet believed in Jesus Christ as the Savior, perhaps you've come searching. And perhaps maybe you're here, you don't even know why you're here. I can tell you God brought you here for a reason. But if you're sitting here this morning and you're hearing these words and you have not yet believed in the Lord Jesus for salvation from your sins, let today be the day. Because all it takes is simply what I just said, that you believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Two things happen when you believe. You recognize the truth about who Jesus is and His authority, but then also recognizing what we're going to celebrate, that He is the only one that could take away our sins. But you are believing that as truth, and that there is no other who can do it, but then you're putting your trust and your faith in that for eternal security and salvation. So when you believe, that's what happens And if you do that today, this morning, there's no magical prayer to do it. But if you come before God, even just between you and Him, even right now or when you leave this place, and you come before God and say, yes, Jesus, I recognize you as the Savior, and I believe in you for my salvation, then Scripture says that you are saved. The Scripture says you have now joined the church and joined the family, see? And the old is gone, the new has come. All of that falls into place. But you have been given new life and recognized that you have been saved from the eternal punishment of your sins. But you've also been given new life here on earth to then serve and to love Him. And church, that's where we fall into it. For those of us who are already believers, who are choosing to be disciples to follow Him, what do we take from this message? Every day when you get up, Are you giving God the authority in your life? No, whether we say it or not, or whether we do it or not, is not Jesus Lord. He is. But yet we are to allow Him to be Lord of our life. 
And how do we do that? How do we submit to the Spirit that He's given us? And how do we um, let Him be Lord and follow Him as Lord and give Him that authority? Obedience. It's by obedience. We're, obedience by, we're obedient by praying and by worshiping, by reading His Word, by fellowshipping, by living for Him. But it's through our obedience, do you see? Because the people of Israel were disobedient and God judged them. And He says to His church, You're my beloved, and see, I love you, and my son died for you. But what I'm looking for is that trust and obedience, to trust and obey, because there is no other way, right? It's that trust and obedience. That's what he's looking for. So the people of Israel were disobedient. He's calling his church, be obedient. So the first step of that is to recognize Jesus as the only means of salvation from what the Bible calls sin, our separation from God. And once you have believed, and we say then you are saved, born again, then you recognize, okay, I am choosing to be His follower. So every day, every moment of the day, I'm going to allow Him to be Lord of my life. I do that by stepping out, one step at a time, in obedience to Him. You know, Satan was given both beauty and power and authority, but he wasn't content He did not want to submit to God's authority. But after Satan fell, he deceived Adam and Eve. What? To do what? To reject God's authority. Do you see sort of the theme here? Promising that they could have the power. We see later in the story, God liberates the people of Israel from Egypt's oppressive authority. He reestablishes Israel's authority through the law. But still, they were disobedient and they rebelled. Sin is a matter of authority. Jesus comes to earth, and we see in this parable, He comes not necessarily to display His authority by force or might, but with humility, allowing men to receive or reject Him. And that's what the people of Israel did. But the rest of that story is truly amazing. The one who was rejected, that cornerstone, God raises Him from the dead. He becomes the chief cornerstone. One day He will return to bring justice and judgment to the earth, to subdue His enemies. And church, as believers, we get to reign with Him. We look forward to that. In His return, He will be unveiled in full splendor for all to see, displaying His mighty power and authority. And it is then, on a daily basis, when we as believers allow Him to have that authority in our lives, that's when we experience ultimate and true freedom and the peace that passes all understanding and so as we conclude our time gathered around the lord's table you're going to hear some music played and as you do just take the opportunity to have the the elements in your hands and reflect on what they represent see jesus said that they represent his body and his blood It's a new covenant in His blood, He says. And He tells His church, commands them to do two things. That is to baptize, but also to remember around the Lord's table His sacrifice. So that's what we're going to do. It's a very simple, but yet such a profound thing in the life of a believer. Let's never take it for granted. Right? And so as we do that, and as we're going to pray for the cup, and we're going to pray for the... Um, for the bread let us take time to reflect to reflect on our own relationship with god right so let's do that now 
So I'm just going to um, just pray for our bread. We're going to pass that around and then just take it and take some time to reflect. Father God, we thank you for um, how you have moved in us already today. But Lord, as we want to just end our time, just um, in moments of just um, silence and reflection, we do it with the cup and we do it with the bread. And, and now, Lord, this bread representing your body, we understand the truth and um, we sit here in that truth, in light of that truth, that this bread represents your body given for us. We can never truly understand the depth of what that meant to you, Father, or what it meant to Jesus. And Lord, we know he prayed, and he prayed hard in the garden that that cup would pass him, that he would not have to give up his body for us either. But yet your will to be done. So we thank you for that more than we can even say in words. We recognize the significance and the power of his suffering and death on the cross, and he did it for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.